we know what alien species are here. Coming off ships, moving in through the town, perhaps going to a gift shop, passing by the statue of Lenin in Barentsburg, going to the pub. They have got colonization down. Believe it or not, we've found aliens in the Arctic. And not just one, there's many, many more than you might think. Luckily, researchers have now developed a method to find them and catch them. Jessamine Bartlett, hello. Hello. You're a researcher at the Norwegian Institute for Nature Research. And in your honour, we're making this episode of the Nina podcast in English. Thank you so much. (laughs) We'll see how it goes. For new listeners, this podcast is made by the Norwegian Institute for Nature Research. And for our Norwegian listeners, obviously, feel free to keep listening in English. But you could also hear a Norwegian version by searching for Not Two Ladies and Aliens i Arktis. So, Jessamine, you've studied aliens in the Arctic for quite some time. Uh, could you just start by describing the aliens that you've found in Svalbard? They look like mostly weeds that you would, or what we would consider weeds anyway. Um, there's quite a lot of dandelions, uh, also... Uh, I think you call it hunsheks, uh, cow parsley in English. This is also taken up and has also been eradicated since then. Um, but largely you just see a lot of weeds, some grasses as well, lots of festuca and dechompsia, things that you tend to see in your garden or growing on roadsides. Um, there's also alien insects there um, as well. And lots of them have a really strong association with the alien plants that occur. In Svalbard, why is it a problem that they're there? So Svalbard has really unique and beautiful native flora of its own. And what we tend to see is that these weedy species, any invasive species that come in, they can outcompete these native species and threaten them. But also there's this visual impact that you have as well. You lose the tundra if we let these alien species spread too far. So you can have these beautiful landscapes you associate with the Arctic, you know, kind of almost brown expanses and very rare, beautiful plants. And some of it is just turning yellow with these plants that are invading. And you can also almost have meadows just of weeds. And this isn't the Arctic we know and love, and it's not the true biodiversity of the area. Hmm. And how do they get there? Uh, we transport quite a lot of seeds um, through various methods, but even on the soles of your shoes, but also through uh, your clothing and also hay that comes in. Uh, into Svalbard as well. Uh, And where can you typically see all these plants? So we looked at several different areas. Um, There are lots of settlements up in Svalbard, uh, primarily Longibim, which a lot of your listeners may be familiar with. Uh, There's almost 3,000 residents there, I think, now, um, and a lot of tourists come through Longibim. But there's also other settlements. Uh, They were historic settlements and are now being revived again. Uh, We've got Barentsburg, Pyramiden, and then also New Orleans, which is much further in the north. So we looked at all of these towns to see if there are alien species there and where they are and who they are. But we also looked at other areas, um, so typically naturally high-risk sites that perhaps scientists or tourists are visiting. Um, These tend to almost always be bird cliffs. They're a big draw for scientists and obviously wildlife tourists as well. And we also thought that perhaps birds themselves could be moving seeds around. So this is a well-known pathway outside of the Arctic. So we thought that was worth investigating too. But when we looked at this, we found that it is just in towns. It's just the settlements, the places that are really strongly associated with human activity that we see these alien species coming up. There was no 
no aliens outside of these towns. So none of these high-risk bird cliffs had any alien species in them. Why do you think that is? We think it's, well, there's a few different reasons. There are two really, really strong pathways uh, for alien species moving into Svalbard and the high Arctic. Um, historically, there's been some farming, believe it or not, in some of these settlements, particularly Barentsburg and Pyramiden. And they would be, as well as having actual animals there, they'd obviously be importing the feed for the animals. And when you think of a big bale of hay, all it is is just a bundle of seeds and grasses. And you combine these essentially dormant seeds with all of the high nutrients from the animals that have been on this farm. And you disturb the ground a little bit, which alien species love disturbed ground. And you've just got a perfect melting pot for these these seeds to come out of the hay and actually establish and start growing. So we see a really, really strong pattern with where there's been historical farming. We absolutely see a lot of alien species. And then we also see... Well, you can almost trace it as if it's a path when you look at the the map of the most alien species diversity um, is where people are actually moving. So tourists coming off ships, moving in through the town, perhaps going to a gift shop, passing by the statue of Lenin in Barentsburg, going to the pub. And along this path that they're following, we see a, a pattern of alien species and particularly more diverse species where more and more people go. So you have these two really strong indicators that humans, both past and now, are really driving where and what we're seeing. So if you didn't know where the humans uh, went, you could just look at the alien species. Pretty much. And see if yeah. they've been there, there, there. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> That's amazing, really. It, it was a... Even I was a little bit surprised when I overlaid the maps with the, 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 the tourist guide to Barentsburg, for example. And you can just see when people stop and take photographs of the view, when people go to the gift shop. It, yeah, it's, you, you see the, the route that people take. But I'm assuming that people don't take these seeds and plants and insects on purpose. Absolutely not. No, we even now you and I, well, maybe, yeah, we probably have something on us somewhere. Uh, I probably have a seed or something or even maybe some tiny invertebrate stuck in the mud in my shoe, for example. And when you go to places like Svalbard or anywhere in the Arctic or Antarctica, you're moving these things along with you as well. So even in like the Velcro of your coat, if you think of all the fluff that accumulates in there, it's all, all these different like little nooks and crannies that you might not realize are kind of vectors for alien species to get to a new area. And when we're moving around our own towns and cities, this is not such a problem because we're probably carrying the stuff that's local to the area anyway. But when we bundle all of our clothes up and take them into the high Arctic, you know, we really, really need to be checking what we're moving there because it's it is a problem and it is happening. Hmm. And now you've published an article in the Journal of Ecological Solutions and Evidence, along with a whole bunch of other researchers describing a new methodology for monitoring these invasive species. And you've sort of uh, talked a bit about it already, but what are like the main reasons why you need this methodology? So there is no consistent method for monitoring alien species in in the high Arctic in general. Um, in fact, any of the polar regions, there is no consistent methodology. But we've seen in the last few decades, there has been an increase in alien species occurring in all polar regions, especially in Svalbard. 
And we're a little bit concerned because there is also an increasing trend in tourism in these areas. And there's some substantial amounts of investment going into Longyearbyen to support the increase in tourist industry. And as we've already discussed, where people go, alien species follow. So it is really imperative that we start to draw a line in the sand so we can say, okay, we know what alien species are here. And now going forwards, we suggest a regular monitoring program so that we can track who is coming up where and if it's possible to take action in order to either eradicate or you know prevent that pathway from happening at all so this monitoring strategy is the kind of the the ongoing solution to trying to keep on top of this but also on the other side of it there's the stop arctic aliens campaign which tries to cut that off at its source and tries to educate people about how to maybe not bring these alien species in in the first place let's just have a lesson right now what do people need to do when they go to the arctic so i would suggest that as you are packing your bags to to visit the arctic you want to be checking all of your clothes, check the hems, check Velcro, um, check in hoods. If you've got fur or fake fur trims on your hoods, check in these. Crucially, check your shoes, clean them of any uh, debris and mud. Um, If anyone's ever been to New Zealand, they will know that this is a standard practice to get into New Zealand, yet we don't have these biosecurity protocols for the polar regions. Um, So this is something that needs to be drawn into people um, is to check everything before you pack it and if you have any equipment that you're taking especially fishing equipment even things like hiking poles just give everything a really good clean before you get there and as you're moving around the environment in these spaces be aware of what you're moving with you if you see an opportunity to wash the dirt off your boots or you know just to you know pick a seed out of your velcro and you know throw it in a fire then then do it Uh, I get a bit nervous when you when you describe all these things because people are quite lazy in my experience. <laughs> uh, and even like I've been uh, at the airport uh, uh, going into New Zealand and people are taken out of the line all the time and mm-hmm. sort of uh, apples are being removed and and those are quite big things and still people uh, just leave them. Yeah. Uh, shouldn't we be more strict? We should. Yeah, I- I'm So as my my other job working in the Antarctic is uh, is trying to make biosecurity measures like these and protocols universal. Um, so it's a little bit trickier in Antarctica because you have uh, over 50 different countries operating in different ways. So it's so for the Arctic and particularly Svalbard, this is this should be a relatively surmountable challenge. I think we can tackle this, um, and I think it's also worth people remembering that it is a privilege to be able to visit these regions and if the price that you pay is just cleaning some mud off your shoes I think that's a pretty good price to be able to go and see these places whilst they are as wonderful as they are. Mm. But the Arctic is pretty big and even just focusing on Svalbard It's a huge area to look uh, for tiny seeds, insects and plants. How do you find them when you're out doing research? So everything that we've monitored here is is a visibly growing plant. Um, some of them are a little harder to identify because not everything can flower in Svalbard, uh, but maybe it's just taken up root and hasn't got yet to a reproducing stage. Um, so we're physically out doing visual surveys um, of these settlements and bird cliffs um, to, to see who is there. 
and the guys who've been out doing the field work, if they can't identify something on spot, they'll take a sample and take it back to herbarium at the University of Tromso to really fix that ID of who it is. So you just sort of walked around and seen, okay, there's an, <laughs> <laughs> that's an alien species, that's a natural one uh, like that? or No, there was a, a, a full systematic methodology that is repeatable, and that is the key, is that there have been a lot of these kind of incidental walkabout surveys done before um, almost exactly as you describe but nothing that we could go back and repeat uh, like for like again so there was a grid drawn up over these settlements of 20 by 20 meters squared and these were assessed um, and based on whether there had been activity or suspected amounts of alien activity there in the past these would be given a high resolution inspection so kind of gone through with a fine tooth comb to look for alien species Whereas there are some areas that perhaps you don't need to do that. You can just get an idea of who's there very, very quickly because it still is open tundra. Places like New Orleans. So we had these two different strategies of a high resolution survey or a low resolution survey in order to cover the most area possible because this was a huge survey, as I'm sure you can imagine. Um, so by having this repeatable grid uh, technique, it means that we've standardized the system through which you can survey alien species occurrences and also their absence so each time we do this survey we can say that this species is not there at this time and track it perhaps coming in or not in the future hmm. so how often do you think this should be done so it needs to be done every couple of years, but what we've suggested is that this program maps onto the existing general ecological impact assessment of alien species program uh, that is already in Norway um, and was suggested also by another Nina researcher. Um, so this is every five years. Um, so we suggest monitoring ideally once every two to three years and then again um, to kind of map into that or at least feed into that some way so that all of Norway can be encompassed, including Svalbard. And what do you expect to find if you do this survey uh, every few years? Well, in an ideal world, every single tourist that goes to Svalbard will have looked at the Stop a Arctic Aliens campaign and will have completely vacuumed and cleaned all of their clothes and we will see a decline in the amount of alien species that are establishing. But the reality is, um, these are settlements, they are growing, there is an economy to sustain um, and... I imagine that it might get worse before it gets better, um, particularly as we don't have a full understanding yet of the the complete pathways. Um, so we're, we're, we're trying to get funding at the moment to look at this uh, hay pathways. Um, so dog sledding is a huge business in, uh, in Svalbard. Because the dogs use hay to sleep in and stuff? Exactly, like yeah. So the dogs have kennels that need to be insulated and they use hay for that as well. There's also horses on Svalbard um, and they have hay and, and straw bedding as well. So we need to get a, an, an idea of how much is actually coming through these pathways and if there's any way that we can work with the industries and companies that are already in Svalbard in order to support them to becoming uh, less of a vector <laughs> um, and they have like, the discussions we've had with them so far they've been very very supportive of trying to improve their own uh, business practices because obviously no one wants to be part of the problem um, so we need to find solutions in order to to help them be as environmentally friendly as they want to be mm. when you say that the human activity in Svalbard is increasing 
I mean, that's quite an understatement. Yeah, it's it's skyrocketing in in both polar regions. So I also work on alien species in the Antarctic, and it's it's the same thing there. Um, there's a boom in these kind of bucket list tourism ideas people want to see these amazing places especially as they're so vulnerable and they're so jeopardized by climate change people want to see them before they change too much ironically ironically yes and by (coughs) human activity itself is changing these places so we need to find a happy medium Hmm. oh i'm a bit but can we (laughs) (laughs) can we find a happy medium Oh, I'm an eternal optimist uh, and also a terrible cynic. So (laughs) uh, I have to find a happy medium in myself. Um, But I have to believe that people do. Uh, Most people that visit the polls um, are going to these places because they're already engaged with nature and the environment. Um, So you're already preaching to the converted in some ways. But people don't know what they don't know. And it's our job as scientists to educate them and to show them ways to be able to interact with these spaces and these habitats in a way that is not detrimental to the environment and can sustain people's livelihoods. Mm. Um, I don't think these are two mutually exclusive things. It's just a matter of educating. And in order to educate people, we need to do the science to to find the foundation for these, these communication initiatives that we're pushing. Mm. In the Norwegian version of this podcast uh, called Naturvis, we have a couple of questions that we ask everyone who who comes to the podcast. And one of them is, uh, what is the state of your species in in nature right now? And the scale is from one to ten, where one is basically extinct and ten is uh, great, couldn't have been better. Okay, so for... For nearly all of the species that we have monitored, so there's 36 different species that we have found that are alien to Svalbard in this survey. And all of them are doing brilliantly everywhere in the world, which is why they're such successful invaders. Like, they have got colonization down. Like, they've, yeah, it's, there's no worries about that. (laughs) (laughs) They're a threat to all the other species. This is the issue. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, so this I think this is the first time in the podcast that someone said 10. <laughs> yeah. Everything else is uh, sort of down towards the lower end of the scale. I mean, one of our species is basically a dandelion, and I don't think anyone needs convincing that they aren't just, yeah, they've nailed life. Yeah. <laughs> but you'd think, though, that uh, the species that come from the south, where the tourists come from, mm-hmm. uh, don't love to live in the cold climate up uh, in the Arctic. It is quite often the case for a lot of species, um, but what you tend to see, the the species that can colonize in these places already have um, a very, very cosmopolitan range. Um, And it might be that some of the ones that get there already have so pre-adaptations to the cold, um, and they can perhaps survive, like change their life cycle a little bit to adapt to the colder winters or it might be also that you have species that can survive there in the summers and they can take root in the summertime but they die back every winter but because of the amount of uh, what we call a, a propagule pressure the amount of seeds that are being brought in they just get to recolonize every single summer um, what we're worried about is that these species that are getting a summer foothold and are not surviving the winters will be given a boost by climate change. So as everything warms up, as the environment becomes a lot more tolerable to them in the future, you're going to see an increase in these alien species making it through the cold Mm. seasons. So 
Although you're an optimist. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a realist. Yeah. Okay. okay, so this methodology that you've uh, made and the article that you've published, you haven't done that all by yourself. Absolutely not, no. So this whole study came about because Viva Ravolainen from the Norwegian Polar Institute was um, essentially asked by the governor of Svalbard and the uh, Norwegian Environment Agency to do a survey of alien species in Svalbard. And along with uh, some research assistants and also Ingrid Paulsen, who's also at the Norwegian Polar Institute, and Ronja Vedgardner, who's now at uh, NTNU next door, um, they did this survey um, up in Svalbard and uh, together we then looked at how we could take the data that they had and turn it into a proper monitoring methodology in the future. So along with Florian Wilkin, who's from ETH Zurich, who used drones uh, to do some overhead um, photographs and uh, something called uh, NDVI monitoring, which looks at the kind of productivity of a plant so we were able to bring this into our monitoring strategy as well so we're looking at ways of improving the monitoring even further again in the future and then uh, myself and Christina Bakker-Vestergaard also from Nina we looked at how monitoring had been done in the past not really monitoring but surveys and what lessons we could learn from that and all of this combined together meant that we've now got as close as we can to drawing a line in the sand to saying this is what has gone before this is what we can do now this is what we can do in the future and this is how often and how we should be doing it mm. and we're hoping to give that to the environment agency and the governor of Svalbard and hopefully they'll pick it up and continue it in the future yeah and uh, what do you uh, sort of uh, hope that they'll do with it I'll hope they'll do what we suggest. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm, I'm hoping that this will become a regular occurrence every couple of years and we'll start to see uh, a proper timeline of data. We've not been able to have that before because the survey methodologies have been so different, you couldn't compare them. So hopefully this is a line in the sand to say, okay, this is how it is now. And then we'll keep repeating this year on year and we can see trends, we can get on top of an alien species problem before it becomes a problem. Mm. We have just one last question, which is also a question that I ask everyone, mm -hmm. and that's uh, just, um, what's your favorite thing in nature? Mm. Gosh. Um, it's probably a fight between icebergs and blackbirds. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the... But yeah, blackbirds are my is my favorite noise in the world is blackbird songs um, and icebergs because it's, it's indescribable the feeling when you see a massive chunk of an ice sheet floating by in Antarctica and yeah it, it's just astounding. Thank you very much, Jasmine, for being uh, in this podcast and educating us a bit on uh, what's going on in the Arctic and what we could do better. Thank you so much for having me in English. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. Um, if people want to read your whole article, I'm going to let you say the title so people can <laughs> Google it. Uh, but I'll also put uh, a link in the description of the podcast. Thanks. So the paper is called Moving Out of Town, the Status of Alien Plants in High Arctic Svalbard and a Method for Monitoring of Alien Flora in High-Risk Polar Environments. And it will be in Ecological Solutions and Evidence 
on the 26th of March. Yay! Thank you again, Nina, researcher Jessamine Bartlett. Thank you. This podcast is made by the Norwegian Institute for Nature Research. My name is Juliet Landro. If you want to learn more from the researchers here at Nina, follow us on Twitter, check out our website nina.no or our YouTube channel Naturforskning.